and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. <clears throat> Last week was um, a pretty massive turning point in the life of Jesus um, as he announced that his hour had come. That's a pretty significant thing uh, because up until this uh, point, um, he had reiterated over and over again that his hour had not yet come. So as a reader of John's gospel, if you're reading along and you're going through that, this should have been of a, a sort of a, a, a shock, you know, there should have been a, wow, a startle. I'm, I'm startled by what's taking place. Why is this his hour? What does it mean? Well, it's the hour of his death, the time of his death. And in verse 24, he alluded to that. We looked at this last week. John chapter 12, verse 24 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So Jesus was sort of giving us a mini parable there about a seed dying. And, and if he were to die, then much fruit would come from his death. However, while the hour refers to the death of Jesus, John records that the hour would be the glorification of Jesus. And that's in verse 23. We looked at this last week. Jesus says the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. When you read the other Gospels, um, the other authors really highlight more of the shame and the pain suffered by Jesus as our substitute on the cross. But John presents the cross as a place of Jesus' glorification, he sort of takes a different perspective on it. And, and the reason is, we, you go all the way back to John chapter 1, uh, John is, is focused on the deity of Jesus, right? In verse, verse 1 of the very first chapter, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, right? We, we, from the very beginning, he's establishing the fact that Jesus is, is God. And so at this point, you could sort of have a stoic, resolute picture of, of Jesus, right? That he's just sort of roboting along through everything in life because he's God. Um, but the Bible is clear that Jesus was not only fully God, but he was also fully man. And the early church Fathers believed the biblical teaching about the full humanity of Jesus and the full uh, divinity of, of Jesus. But a, press, uh, like a precise understanding of how that really worked out, that, that formed over, over time. And it formed through sort of some inadequate views that sprung up in the early church that they had to refute. And I want to give you a few of those today. One of them was Apollinarianism. It was uh, sort of formed by Apollinaris, who was a bishop of Laodicea around AD 361, and here's what he believed. He believed Jesus had a human body, okay, that part was human, but his mind and his spirit were divine, right? So the only part that was human about Jesus was the body, but everything else was divine. Nestorianism was another one. Nestorius was a preacher in Antioch around AD 428, somewhere in there, and he believed that there were actually two separate persons in Christ. So there was a human person and a divine person, right? Two separate people is, is how he uh, viewed Jesus. And then you had a view that sprung up that was sort of the opposite of Nestorianism. It was called uh, monophysitism, and it was um, sort of propagated by a man named Eutychus. He was a, a leader of a monastery, but he taught the opposite, and that was that the, the human nature was sort of absorbed into the divine nature, and it created a, a third altogether new nature. And so all three of those were just wrong views. They were inadequate uh, views. And so the church leaders were forced to meet 
to decide, well, how should we view Jesus? And they met in a place called Chalcedon in 451, and they formed what is known as the Chalcedonian Definition. And I wanted to read you a portion of the Chalcedonian Definition of the person of Christ. It's a lengthy one, so I'm only going to read a couple parts of it. But it was specifically formed to guard against those three aforementioned uh, heresies or inadequate views of Jesus, okay? So here's how it starts. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with the us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin. And I'll skip down to another part here. And we're to be, he's to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one <laughs> subsistence not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see by that definition they were specifically trying to refute those inadequate views of who Jesus was. And, and near the end there, they use this word subsistence. And that is a Greek word, hypostasis, the Greek version of that, is where theologians come up with the term for this. It's called the hypostatic union. And that is simply the union of Christ's human nature and the union of his divine nature, but into one person. I remember I had a, a young guy I had discipled and in church, and then he, he began to serve in children's ministry. And we had a big vacation Bible school week, and I found out he was teaching one weekend. And he loved to just do things like this, he just, you know, just to throw me off. And I said, oh, you're teaching this week. What are you teaching? He goes, oh, I've I got it already. I'm teaching about the hypostatic union of Jesus. <laughs> And my mouth went down because he's talking about, you know, kids that are six, you know. And I went, what? And he goes, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing But he, you know, he loved, he loved learning about that stuff and then joking about it. But it just simply means that it's the union of Christ's human nature and divine nature into one person. Does that make sense? So John up to this point has focused almost exclusively on the deity of Jesus, right? Almost exclusively, that's sort of the thrust of his gospel. However, I think less we should maybe have an unbalanced view of who Jesus is, he gives us a view of his humanity here in this passage and specifically mentions something about Jesus's troubled soul. Look at verse 27. We're in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. Those are the words of Jesus. Jesus says my soul is Troubled. The word troubled is terasso, and it means to be stirred up. It's the same word used way back in John chapter 5 when we talked about that pool of Bethesda that supposedly, according to myth, would be stirred up by an angel, right? It's to agitate the waters is the same word. It's the idea. So his soul is agitated. He's distressed. He is anxious. He is troubled. This is Jesus. Interesting. And when you read Matthew, Matthew records uh, Jesus praying prior to the cross and he, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. So you think about these words, sorrow um, and distressed, anxiousness. What are all those things? Those things are all emotions. And those things are what make humans human, right? We have emotions, right? And you might be shocked at reading this through this. 
wait, Jesus is troubled? But he's God. How can God be troubled? But what John is trying to show is that this is also Jesus, and he is a man, and that he experiences the problems of man, and he has the emotions of man. Those are normal. (laughs) Those are good. It's not the emotions themselves that are wrong, necessarily. Sometimes they are, but it is what we do with them, how we handle them. Because the Bible is clear that um, emotions, just like our actions and just like our thoughts, spring from the same place, the heart. Proverbs 4.23 tells us this, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So the heart is where everything comes from. What you think, what you feel, what you do springs from what's in here. And so it's not uh, the circumstances or what's going on that week. You know, I know we do like to blame circumstance a lot of times for our actions, but it's not the circumstances that are the problem. It's the heart. And Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 5. In verses 19 to 20, he says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. It's, it's easy to see when the flesh is ruling the heart. And he gives us a list, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. There's a big list, right? And all of those things can um, come from a heart that's ruled by the flesh. So if you think about this, if your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions are ruled by the flesh, then your thoughts going off that list are going to be Immoral thoughts, impure thoughts, sensual thoughts, um, idolatrous thoughts, jealous thoughts, wrathful thoughts. Does that make sense? Right? When it's ruled by the flesh. But a heart ruled by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, is different. Then your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, you should see loving thoughts, joyful thoughts, peaceful thoughts, patient actions, kind, goodness, faithful, right? All those are the fruits of the Spirit. And those should be our thoughts, feelings, and actions that come from a heart that's ruled by Christ. Now, for this passage that we're in to be practical, I need to establish that first. Because Jesus just told us that we need to follow his example. And that was in verse 26. We talked about this last week. Look at it. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. But I'm just going to tell you right now, you cannot follow him if you don't have, uh, he does not have your heart. If he's not ruling your heart. That's why I need to start there. I need, to, I need to show you that this is only possible. It's only to, uh, possible to follow example of Jesus if, he's, if my heart's being ruled by him. Now, in this passage, Jesus is faced with an emotional response to a situation, isn't he? Why is he troubled? He's looking at the cross. His hour has come. He knows that by the end of the week, he's going to be hanging on the cross. So how does he react to that? Well, as you'll see, he doesn't allow his emotions to govern his actions. We do. As humans, a lot of times, we allow our emotions to dictate what we do. But as you'll see, Jesus, in his human nature, feeling a human emotion, isn't run by his emotion. It's not dictated by his emotion. And he just told us that we need to follow him, which means we are capable of doing this. Jesus doesn't say, follow me, and then walk across water and say, what's wrong with you guys? Right? Is that what he's talking about? How does Jesus walk across water? In his divine nature. Right? That's his divinity. But what Jesus is experiencing here, what he's feeling, is coming on his human 
nature. He's able to react to normal human emotions, and yet he's able to do it without sinning, which means we can too. Now, most of us will simply, yeah, do the, pull the Jesus card and say, well, but it's Jesus. You know, it's because he's God. He can do all these things. Well, I would have a problem with that because we have verses that tell us different. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, scripture there tells us that Jesus was what? Tempted. So if he was tempted, we can't go, well, he wasn't really tempted because he's God. Why? (laughs) Scripture just told us he was tempted. In Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus' human nature was, was tempted, just as ours is. I want you to consider the temptation of Jesus by Satan. If you want to turn there in Matthew chapter 4, you can because you might just remember it by heart. But in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. This is the beginning of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, this is what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So that's why the Spirit led him there, for the purpose of being tempted, which means he can be tempted because the Spirit led him there, right? And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Understatement. <laughs> Verse 3, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, let me ask you this. The tempter came to him. Jesus was hungry. Was he hungry in his divine nature or human? His human nature, right? He was hungry. He needed a cheeseburger for crying out loud. He's been 40 days without food. But how about this? When the tempter came and said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's divine nature. Does Jesus have the ability to be hungry? Yes, in his human nature. Does he have the ability to turn stones into bread? Yes, in his divine nature. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's his human nature that is being tempted, and he resisted in the strength of his human nature. He didn't give in to the temptation to make things easier for himself by using his divine nature, Right? How could he make things easier for himself? Turn those things into bread, gobble them down. That's what Satan is tempting him to do. Come on, use your divine nature, make things easier for yourself, because I know you want to write a verse in Hebrews that tells these puny humans can identify with you. So Jesus overcomes that temptation through his own will in his own human nature and by, I should add, depending on God the Father and the Holy Spirit, just as we are supposed to. So, Looking at our passage in John 12, what's the response that Jesus has to his emotions in this passage? How does he overcome the temptation to be governed by them? Let's look at it today. We're going to look at verses 27 to 36. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. 
And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he was going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Let me pray. God, we're grateful for the passage that is before us. Lord, this is your word. We want to hear from you today. And Lord, it's a, it's a difficult passage. It's one that's hard for our minds to understand because we know that Jesus is God. We know that he is man. And it's difficult to understand how these two things balance out. But Lord, your word is true. And we know what your word says. And so I just pray that you would help us to see today what's taking place here. And Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive what you say, that we might find a way to apply these truths to our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so looking back at verse 27 again, I just want to show you four things. There's four things I I see here that Jesus uh, sort of uses to overcome that temptation to be governed by his emotion. I mean, uh, my soul is troubled is an understatement in my, my perspective. Knowing what's ahead of Jesus at the end of that week, the pain that he's going to go through, Uh, my soul is troubled. I would probably say that a little bit differently. (laughs) How about you? And then there'd be, I'd be gone. There'd just be dust, right? But Jesus doesn't do that, as you'll see. So look at at verse 27 again. We're going to point four things out. He says this, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I think the first thing we can pull from here is that Jesus has a focus on something else. Yes, he's troubled because he knows what the cross is, but he's, he's putting that focus away for a second because he's focusing on his purpose, his purpose. He thinks about the purpose, and Jesus poses a hypothetical thought here. What should I say then? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I should do? Should I just ask the Father for that? That kind of sounds familiar, right? In fact, some of you might be thinking of his prayer in the garden. You might be thinking, well, He does pray that, doesn't he? Doesn't he say that exact thing? Well, let's look at that and see if he did. I have the verse for you. It's in Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42. This is what Jesus prays in the garden. And he was was withdrawn from them, speaking of the disciples, about a stone's thrown away. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now we know what Jesus is speaking about, take this cup cup is the cup of God's wrath, the, his, what's about to take place, right? He's about to drink his destiny, and he does pray, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. So does he actually pray, save me from this hour? Does he actually pray, take this cup away from me? No. He says, Father, if it is your will, his sole purpose, as we've seen through John, and I'm not going to take today to go back through it because I've done it a couple times to show you all the places that Jesus says he's here to do the what of the Father? the will of the Father. His sole purpose is to do the will of the Father, and in so doing, bring him glory. That's why he's here. So Jesus reminds himself in this passage, right? It's for this purpose I came. My soul is troubled. He feels it. He's anxious in his human nature. That's going to be painful. That's going to be shameful. He's going to take upon the sins of the world and and God's wrath. But he 
focuses past that and says, no, it's for this purpose I came to this hour. He's in emotional turmoil here. And I think, you know, he's able to focus past this in spite of conflicting emotions because it's the purpose. It's the purpose. And Jesus got through telling us, his servants, that we need to follow him. We need to follow his example. We're supposed to, right? The Christian life requires a resolve to live like Christ. It does, right? We're, 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 I, want to, I want to live like him. We don't do it perfectly, right? We want to. We want to live like him. And in keeping with that resolve, Jesus just prays those simple words, Father, glorify your name. And that's the essentially not my will, but your will be done prayer in the garden. The glory of God must be the overriding impulse, the overriding impulse of our hearts. It overrides the impulse to react emotionally to the situations that come. Um, and that, you know, rather than doing that, we react in a God-honoring way. And that's what Jesus does here. He goes, why am I here? I'm here to glorify God. I'm here to glorify God. So here's things to ask yourself. Yes, what is my purpose? I got to focus. I got to refocus on that. Ask yourself then, are my actions glorifying him? That's what Jesus is doing. Father, glorify your name. I'm here for this hour. He focuses on the purpose. The second thing he focuses on is his example. Because people are watching him, right? They better be because he just told them they need to follow him, right? You need to follow me. I'm your example. Follow me. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Which means Paul better be leaving it as well. But here in verse 28, very interesting. This, this voice comes from heaven. Look at it. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I've been, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, this is the third time in, in scripture and the third time that uh, the father's audible voice was heard. Three times we, we actually have that recorded in, in scripture. The first time is that Jesus' baptism, right? His baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, Matthew records this. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then later at Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So this is the third time we have an audible voice come from heaven, and there are others around. And I love how people explain. I see two groups of people that hear this. You have the, the naturalists, the ones that won't look at the supernatural, right? The natural phenomenon is, oh, it thundered, right? That was just thunder. I heard a voice. No, that was thunder. Now, it could have sounded like thunder to them. It could have sounded like thunder to them. The reason is, in the Old Testament, God's voice is associated with thundering. You might remember in Exodus chapter 19, God is on the mountain, Moses is on the mountain, and all the children of Israel are at the foot of the mountain. And from their perspective, in, in chapter 19, it tells us that they saw thunderings and lightnings and a cloud. And just a few verses later, it's Moses' perspective, and he's speaking to God, and the voice of God is speaking back to him. So Moses, being in the presence of God, hears God's voice. But the people down there, that's just thunder, all right? Now they know it's God up there, but what they hear, they don't hear the voices, they hear thunder. David, King David equates the two in 2 Samuel twenty two fourteen. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. You see that? He'll, he'll actually use that exact same phrase in Psalm uh, chapter 18. 
You might remember when God questions Job. A few weeks ago, we looked at that. God questioning Job for his thoughts and his actions. And in chapter 40, verse 9, he says, Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like God? Even Revelation tells us that, huh? We get to Revelation, we see that there were thunderings and lightnings and voices coming from the throne room of God. So it's very possible that what some heard was thunder because God's voice is equated with thunder. And I think the audible voice might be only heard by those who are more spiritually perceptive, spiritually attuned. These are the naturalists, right? They don't believe in the supernatural things. That's just, that's just thunder. We have those people today, right? That, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. It can't happen. Miracles don't occur. They try to explain it in just logical ways. But then you have the group that are the supernatural. You have the ones that said, no, but I think it's a, the voice of an angel. Voice of an angel. There's a lot of people... Um, obsessed with angels. Back when, um, years ago, there was a, a very popular television show in the States called Touched by an Angel. I don't know if you had it here. You did. It's such a sappy show, right? Right? Michael Landon, everybody's always crying. But, you know, I, I knew so many, though, I knew so many non-Christians that, were, that loved that show because they loved the idea of angels living among us, right, and, and curing us and helping us through difficult times, and that's a comforting uh, thing. But, you know, these people are wrong, too. It's not the thunder that they heard. It's not the voice of an angel that they heard. God had clearly spoken. And what did God speak? He says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus just prayed, Father, glorify your name. And he says, I have glorified it. Now, how has God glorified um, his name? He has glorified his name through the obedience of his son. Remember, Jesus has lived to do the will of the Father. He's done it perfectly. He's done it obediently. He's lived to do his will. But the Father also affirms that he has glorified the Father through his life, through his ministry, but since that's true, he's going to glorify him again. And he's going to glorify him again through his death on the cross. That's what John was, is painting here, right? Glorification will come from the cross. What am I saying here? Well, the life example of Jesus and the death example of Jesus are the ones that we must follow. We're, we're called to follow that because we are uh, an example as well. People are, are watching us. And uh, Jesus is focusing on his example. He's got disciples there, right? He's got um, other people around that could be influenced here. And the great goal of our lives is to back up sound doctrine, meaning the, the Bible, what we believe, with sound living. If you say you believe these things and live a different way, it's not the right example because you're not really... You're not really walking the walk. You're just talking the talk. You can talk all day long, but words are cheap. It's actions. Our lives can't be ones that are dictated by the, the emotions and the actions and, and things that just come by impulse, but by the Holy Spirit, by the knowledge of his word. And that's our greatest testimony through our life and death even, because Jesus calls us to even be willing to die for him. The Lord will produce much fruit. So it's all about others, and the way to reach others is through the example of holy lives, living for the glory of God. It's for others. And that's why Jesus says what he says in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. That's where I get the example from. Because that seems like a confusing verse there, because the voice seems to come in answer to Jesus' prayer, right? Father, glorify now. I have glorified it. Right? It seems to come as an answer to what Jesus said, but then Jesus says, no, that voice wasn't for me, it was for you. 
Interesting, isn't it? Can I ask you something? Does Jesus need to hear the audible voice of God to know that his prayers will be answered? No. Do you need to hear the audible voice of God to know that your prayers will be answered? The audible voice of God? No. Because God answers your prayers. He doesn't always answer them the way you want them to be answered. <laughs> a lot of times it's a no. <laughs> and we wanted a yes. But he answers your prayers. So as he says in this verse, the answer is not for the benefit of him, of, of Jesus. It's to strengthen the faith of the disciples. It's to be an example to others. Well, what else carries Jesus past the, the emotions, the troubled soul that he's experiencing, right? He's not running away. Instead, he's focusing on his purpose. He's focusing on the fact that he can be an example to those that are around him. Thirdly, he's focusing on the victory the cross will bring. A cross is an instrument of torture and death. That is true. But he's looking at the victory that will come from that. And that's in verses 31 to 33. Look what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I am, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. As Jesus anticipates the cross, he focuses on the victory. And here's three things I see here, three things. One, his death would bring about the judgment of the world. Do you see that? 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now, John has already pointed out that Jesus said back in, in John three seventeen that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Remember that? Um, and, and he'll say that in this passage as well. And if you just flip the page or look further on in verse 47 of chapter 12, Jesus is going to say something very similar. 47, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This seems confusing, doesn't it? There Jesus says he doesn't judge. But here in this verse, he says, now is the judgment of the world. So what is he talking about? He said something similar back in chapter 9, and we talked about it there. But in essence, here, the judgment of the sins of the world will take place on the cross, right? Now the judgment of the world is taking place. God is going to judge the sins of mankind, right, by Jesus' death on the cross. Mankind's sin is paid for on the cross. But then you must believe in the cross to find that forgiveness of sins that he offers, Right? You can't find forgiveness of sins. You don't believe that actually paid for your sin. There's no forgiveness there. You must believe that that act paid for your sin. So Jesus is saying the judgment of the sins of the world is going to take place on the cross um, there. And those that are unbelieving really do seal their re rejection of the, they seal their fate by rejecting Jesus. They're re rejecting the, the cross. Um, Paul speaks, speaks to the Greeks and the Oropagus, and he's talking about that there's going to be a day in which he will judge the righteousness, right? He talks about that that will take place after he rises from the dead. So the actual judgment of people who reject the cross will take place later. So that's how those two things balance. Jesus is not here to condemn people. He's here to let the judgment of the sins of the world be placed upon him. He's taking the weight of our sins on the cross. Jesus will judge the sins of the world. But those who don't believe in the, what the cross has done for them really doom uh, themselves by, and they seal their fate by rejecting Jesus' um, sacrifice for us. So, so he's looking at the victory that he's going to have, and the sins will be paid for on the cross. 
But the second thing is that his death would bring the judgment upon Satan. Do you see that there? In verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. And then he says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, Satan is the ruler of this world. Scripture makes that clear. He's the God of this age. He's not a God. He's a created being, but he's the ruler of this world. And Scripture tells us several times that Satan will be cast out or cast down or cast somewhere. And it's an interesting little word study. Uh, But during the tribulation, he'll be permanently cast down out of heaven. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, I'll remind you of these words. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Now, the accuser, the accuser of our brethren, the accuser of believers is Satan, right? Satan, interestingly enough, has access to God. He can go to heaven. He can go speak to God. And some of you might, well, wait, he's the great enemy. Why doesn't God just crush him, right? Well, this is part of God's eternal plan. Satan right now does have access just like he did in Job. Remember, Satan goes into, you know, really accuse Job, and that's why he's given permission to afflict him. But there's going to come a day into tribulation here where he'll be cast down. The word is katabalo. It means to be put into a lower place. He will no longer have access to heaven. That will take place in the tribulation there. Um, That will cease. No more accusations. No more coming to God and say, what about this guy? What about that guy? Then at the end of the tribulation, he'll be cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Remember, he's bound and he's he's chained. He's put into the pit for a thousand years. And then after that time, he's set free to, to deceive the nations for a short time. And then he's captured, cast into the lake of fire. Both of those times, it says cast into, and it just says balo. It just means to be thrown into. But here, we're told, the ruler of this world would be cast out, but through the cross. Interesting. Cast out, get this, is ekbalo. And it has the sense of violently being expelled. You ever had one of those really bad stomach flus? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about violently expelling what was once inside with force to the outside. That's the word there, cast out. Satan thought he had the victory when Jesus died on the cross, right? Satan thinks he has the victory. But it was, in fact, the other way around. Satan was violently deprived of his power and his influence that he exercises in the world. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 tells us this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Satan was conquered on the cross. Satan was destroyed. His big weapon, death, was removed from him. And interestingly, you might be going, well, how, how does all that work? Well, in Revelation, what we just read, when the accuser of the brethren is, is cast out, uh, the very next verse, verse 11, tells us this, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. How was, how was Satan overcome? By the blood of the lamb. Where was the blood of the lamb sacrificed? On the cross. So Satan was overcome by the blood of the lamb, but also not just that. Revelation tells us, by the word of their testimony, by the word of saints, by the word of believers, by their example. And they didn't love their lives even to death. They were willing to die for Christ. 
you might be looking at this world going, how is the ruler of this world cast out? Satan seems to have a lot of influence today. He has a lot of power. He has no power over you. Satan has no power over you. He's been cast out. He's been overcome by the blood of the lamb. And as a believer, you are covered by the blood of the lamb. He has no power over you. But you also overcome him by the word of your testimony, how you live your life. Yes, does Satan have influence over the lives of people today? Yeah, because they invite him in, right? When you reject God's word and his counsel, you are accepting only one other alternative. It's the influence of the world, which is satanically energized, right? It's opposing everything God says. But we have the victory over Satan. He has no power. So Jesus is looking at the victory on the cross, the judgment of the world. Sin will be paid for, the sins of the world. Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Paul talks about this in Acts 26, 18. He says that Jesus died to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You have the power of Satan is no longer over you. Amen to that. But the third thing is, in verse uh, 33 here, or verse 32, he says, And I, am, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So the third thing he points out in his victory here is that he'll, he'll draw all peoples to himself. Now, here's what Jesus is not teaching. He's not teaching universalism, meaning that everyone will be saved. He's going to draw all peoples to himself. So it doesn't matter what's going to happen. You're all just going to be saved. Everyone has a free, uh, free ticket. That's not what he's teaching here. And we know that because of what he taught earlier in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, he talked about the two resurrections. Do you remember that? He says this in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Two resurrections. So there's certainly people who would be resurrected for eternal life with Christ, but some are resurrected for condemnation, for judgment. So what Jesus is speaking about here and what the thrust of John's gospel is about is that Jesus' death would bring about the salvation of all kinds of people, right? People from all walks of life. And last week we looked at um, one group of the, uh, that, that came to him, right? The, the Gentiles, the Greeks came to him, right? That's a case in point. The Greeks come to him. Everyone thought, you know, it's just the Jews that are God's people. But then some Greeks show up, and they want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus essentially gives the gospel. He essentially says, I'm going to have to die, and from my death, a lot of fruit is going to come. What he's saying is that the the Gentiles are going to have to come to Jesus the same way the Jews do. They're all going to be drawn to him by believing in his work on the cross. The context of this passage tells us that. Look at verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. When he said... When I'm lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. And John says he's talking about his death. Here's the point. There is no access to God apart from the cross. There's, there's none. It is through the cross and the cross alone. You, some of you know we're, we're, we're getting ready to move. There's a rent for rent sign at our house. And this Friday night, all the youth are arriving for our resolve you know, thing. And, and then everyone's coming in saying, hey, there's a couple people out here. They want to talk to you about renting your house. Uh, and so there was just a couple of people who drove by and saw the for rent sign. I ended up having a 10-minute conversation with this couple because someone coming in must have told, told them that we were here for a Bible study or I was a pastor or something. So he, were, he already had that information on me. He said, so you're a pastor. I was like, you've been following me? What's going on? 
But he, he said, so, you know, I, I haven't been talking about it. I've been thinking about getting baptized, and I don't know if I should be, you know, Catholic or Protestant. What are you? You know, and he's, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I was like, I, I would classify myself you know, Protestant, I guess. And, and so then he started talking about how they, you know, where they've come from in Turkey and how, you know, they really believe in the Muslim faith as well and how it's really the same God. We really believe the, the same thing. Like, we're really just preaching the same God. But I'll tell you, the Muslims don't preach a crucified Christ. There's no access to that God unless it's through the cross. So they might be thinking it's the same God, but it's not, because we have to go through Christ. All through John's gospel, it's unmistakable, right? The only way to the Father is through the Son. One final point, we'll close with this point. Verses 34 to 36 The people answered him and said, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you, the Son of Man, uh, you say, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus said to them, Well, we'll look at just verse 34. Look at that's interesting here. Because he's just talked about being lifted up. They very much get the picture. They know what he's talking about. He's talking about being dead, right? He's also just come out of the triumphal entry. He presented himself as the Messiah publicly to the whole nation. So, They believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's the Messiah. He comes forward and says, yes, and I'm going to have to die. I'm going to be lifted up. So this is where their confusion comes. They don't understand the concept of a crucified Messiah. They think the Messiah is supposed to come and live forever. That's what they're saying. Well, wait, the Christ remains forever, but you're talking about a different Christ. So who's that son of man? You see what they're saying? You're, you're, You're presenting someone different to the one we know. They don't understand how it squares up with the Messiah of the Bible. Probably thinking of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. I have it for you here. This is a Messiah passage. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That's the Messiah they're thinking about. You're here forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. But you're talking about being lifted up. You're talking about dying. You're talking about a different Messiah. They assume the Messiah, the reigning and ruling Messiah, was the one to come. But who's this one you're describing? They overlooked the clear teaching of the Old Testament that the first coming of the Messiah would be for the purpose of dying. There would be a second coming of the Messiah for the purpose of reigning. They overlooked that. And so Jesus confronts these people with the, the fact that their issue is not an intellectual one, but a moral one. They need, they need the light. Now, here's what's interesting. I think this is the fourth point here. Jesus, he just told us his soul is troubled. He's got the cross before him. The last thing you need are these, these last unbelievers who don't get what you're talking about. He's like, okay, enough with you. I got to go to the cross, right? I got to focus on me. I need a me moment. I, I'm, really, I'm really in turmoil here, but Jesus doesn't do that. He has an opportunity right in front of him, and he takes the opportunity. He focuses on the opportunity. He evangelizes these people. They're lost. They're spiritually blind. He could say, I don't have time for you. I'm out of here. He could focus on his own problems, but he doesn't. So he shows them where they need to go. Look at verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, Jesus has already described himself as as the light, so we don't have to figure out what's he talking about with the light. Back in John chapter 8, verse 12, 
Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. So we know he's talking about him. He's, he's talking about himself. And right now, there's a limited opportunity to walk while the light is with them, while Jesus is with them, because he's about to die. This is astounding. Because in the shadow of the cross, in the midst of intense internal turmoil, Jesus is able to look into those faces of those lost people and warn them of the danger of not believing in him, of not following him, of being lost in spiritual darkness. Walk with me while I'm here, he says, because I I won't be here much longer. I don't fear for my safety. No, I fear for yours. I fear for your future. We have opportunities like that every single day to share the gospel, don't we? Not just in word, but in deed. There's an interesting verse to me, Philippians 2, chapter 4, 14. Chapter 2, verse 14, sorry. Paul says this, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, it's an interesting little verse. Do all things without complaining and disputing. I, would, I thought, you know, why, why does he concern himself so much about whether we complain or dispute? Well, then he gives us the reason in verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Even something as simple as complaining. Dispute. Who here doesn't complain? Right? Like we, we all complain. Yeah, only one. All right. It's so easy to complain, isn't it? Right? You can go through a fast food thing, right? And they just mess up your order and I complain. Oh, I can't believe this. Right? We just, we, we complain. We grumble. We dispute. But he says, don't do those things. Why? Because the world is looking and you need to shine like lights in the universe. You're to be the light. You're to be an example. You have opportunity. It's clear we're to be lights in the world. Walking with the light, he says, believing in the light as sons of light, he tells these people. Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It's, it's not easy. What, what I'm, I'm showing you today is not easy. Oh, let's just be like Jesus, everybody. Go home. We wake up every single day, and we have to battle the impulse towards sinful emotions, thoughts, and actions every day. All of us do. What Jesus gives here is perspective change. Instead of focusing on self and problems and circumstances, he's focused on, to recap, your purpose. His purpose to glorify God is yours. You exist to glorify God, and one day enjoy him forever. His focus is on his example. People are looking at him. Paul says to follow me as I follow Christ. People are looking at you. You can shine like lights in the universe to be an example. He focuses on his victory. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. You have victory over sin and death, right? You can lose an arm. You can lose a leg. You can have cancer. You have victory over sin and death. You might say, well, but cancer, I'll, I'll, I'll die. <laughs> you have victory over sin and death because you'll live forever. And he'll focus on his opportunity to evangelize the lost. He doesn't spoil an opportunity. There's not a me a moment. I might have shared this many years ago, but there was a, a time when my brother Alan was still at Oxford in that church, and he was bringing over a young person to help serve him for a little while. And at the border when they got here, she said the wrong word. You know, whatever it was, there was an alert word they were looking for, like, I'm here to work or something like that. And they didn't have a work visa, so, you know, alarm, alarm. So they detained her. They ended up sending her back. Right? It was just a big, uh, big mess. You know? So she never got to come. She never got to serve. They actually, the, the government rejected her. 
And that's, I mean, she put a lot of time and effort and money and raising support. She made all these things to come here, and they were like, nope, you had the wrong visa, you said the wrong thing, and she never came. But I remember talking to her when that happened. I was in the States when she went back. She says, you know what's interesting? She said, they took me back to a, a back room that, that I only had access to because of that, that, that problem. They took me to this room, and there I was sitting alone in this room, and they brought another person in. And that person was sitting in the same room. Only two of us in the room. Only two could get access to this room because we had done something wrong, right? We had gone the wrong way. And here I am sitting in this room. I'm thinking like, oh, this stinks. What was me, right? This is a terrible situation. And then it hit me. I'm somewhere no one else has access to. And here's a person sitting here. I have opportunity. And she shared the gospel with that person. It's that perspective change that I'm talking about. It's emotion that usually comes out like, oh, I can't believe this. This stinks, right? That is so hard to fight against. Instead, Jesus gives an example that's entirely humanly possible because in his human nature, he resisted these things because he focused on other things. And then Jesus closes these things by saying this, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. It's interesting how John closes that. He spoke these things and he departed and he was gone. It's as if to illustrate the point of of the walking while there's an opportunity to walk in the light, right? Because then he's he's just gone. He's departed. He's hidden from them. I think it's a prelude to the Lord's final call to Israel to believe, which we'll cover next week. But here, Jesus gives us an amazing example. And I want to encourage you today, if you feel like it's just so hard, it's so hard to follow Jesus, so hard to be an example, it's so hard to do those things. It is every single day. Take the moment you need, you know, go sit somewhere quiet and just focus through these things. What did Jesus do? He didn't, do, he didn't do like hocus pocus and whammy. He didn't do any of that. There wasn't any divine miracle that got him through this. He just said, no, I'm here to glorify God. He says to himself, I've got to remember that. And I've got to remember that. I've got to wake up in the morning and go, wait, hold on, right? It's not a big deal. We were moving yesterday. In my mind, it was like time crunch. I got to get these things done, right? We were unscrewing the shed and all these little metal screws were going all over our driveway, and I take all this time and care to clean them all up because like, we got to back out two cars. You don't want a flat tire, right? I, all these things. I put all these screws away, and Ethan and I go all the way to the tip. We dump the stuff, and I get a metal rod in my tire at the tip, right? <laughs> After all this care, I was on my hands and knees picking up screws like, ah, oh, no flat tire. And I start pulling away. It's going, go, 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 But I was grateful for my son because at that moment, I was like, ah, oh, I had all these plants. I was going to do these things. He's like, well, that's God's sovereignty, you know? He obviously had a purpose in this, right? I'm like, ah. So we went and sat in quick fit for an hour <laughs> while my wife worked at our new house cleaning it, which I felt slightly guilty for, <laughs> right? But I had an opportunity with my son, right? I had an hour with him. You know what I mean? So sometimes it's just like, okay, Lord, it's not all about me, right? I, it's about you and your time frame and your timetable, your plans. I'm here for you. Jesus gives us an awesome example, one that we should follow and one that we can follow. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for John to be mindful of balancing so well the divinity of Jesus along with the humanity. Jesus felt like we do. He experienced human emotions, yet he was able to overcome those without sinning, we're told. Tempted to succumb to those sinful thoughts or actions, he, he didn't. Lord, I thank you that we can have the hope of overcoming those things by the power of your Holy Spirit, not our own strength, the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. As you transform us, as you change us, Lord, we can become more 
and more like you. Would you help us as your church, as your people, to be those lights that shine in the darkness for you and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.